Today's scripture lesson comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 18b through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The word of God for the people of God. I'm just going to start out this morning by uh, doing something that preachers are never supposed to do, uh, which is admit that I am not qualified to deliver the sermon this morning. Uh, but then again, on Friday, Pastor Jeff told me he was glad he wasn't the one preaching it, so I don't think he thinks he's qualified either, because you heard the text read, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These are phenomenal words. But you almost have to be a saint, really, to talk about them in a way that uh, comes with any understanding or authority. Because i got to admit, Paul in this passage is really kind of annoying. I have no idea how someone can, can do what Paul does, like we looked at in this passage last week of... Right, he's in prison, and him being in prison is making some people, the other leaders, more bold in proclaiming the gospel, and some, most probably, are doing it out of love for him and love for Jesus, but there are some who are just rubbing it in his face. Like, check it out, look what I'm doing, I'm not going to jail, what'd you do wrong? And he says, you know what, my ego is not the important thing here, I just rejoice that Jesus is being preached. It's like, can't you be just a little bit annoyed? Because then he goes on and he says, 
in this next passage we're looking at today, he says, you know what, and, and I'm going to rejoice even though this imprisonment and impending trial that I'm going through right now could end up in my death, uh, I'm still going to rejoice. I don't know how you get to that point in your life. I don't know how somebody gets to the point where they can look at the, their ego being squashed like a bug or impending death for doing what God has told them to do and say, I rejoice. And to say it without irony or without hypocrisy. How does somebody get to that point? Paul says, I'm in prison? Cool. Cool, cool, cool. No problem. People are trying to make me look bad by preaching Jesus? No problem at all. I'm probably going to be executed or maybe set free. I don't know. Great. If they kill me, I get to be with Jesus. It's a win-win. I'd like to say I have that kind of attitude, but I haven't been tested at that level, and I'm afraid that if I were, I'd probably be found wanting. I don't know, maybe some of you feel the same way. I'd like to have just even a little bit of Paul's kind of rejoiceful attitude that he has. I mean, maybe if I did, I wouldn't uh, get frustrated with my daughter trying to learn her spelling words or get you know, mad at a vendor who doesn't deliver what they're supposed to deliver or get annoyed when people can't read my mind and just do what I want them to do even if I didn't explain it very well, right? I'm, these are all hypothetical things. I just m am trying to identify with you all, um, not anything that comes from the last week of my life. Um, but seriously, like, if I could have the same kind of attitude as Paul, maybe it wouldn't completely derail me when my job just disappears. Maybe I wouldn't be so thrown off when everything I've worked for disappears in the next stock market crash. Maybe it wouldn't absolutely floor me and devastate me when my spouse abandons me or my kids disappoint me and hurt me in profound ways. Paul has somehow an attitude of joy, a disposition toward rejoicing that is supernatural, otherworldly. It's something I'm not sure I can figure out how to attain. So I come into this passage this morning with some fear and trepidation. Um, there's a few things that I've observed that I want to share with you, and, and maybe if you're like me and you're, you're sort of like a spiritual infant in this area, like taking your first stumbling steps towards joy, maybe this will be an encouragement to you. Um, if you're one of those who's much farther down this path than I am, and I know there are many of you much more qualified to talk about this topic than me, if it's one of you, I hope this too will encourage you, because whether you're a spiritual infant or adult, the principles from this passage remain the same. The three facts about joy that I want to unfold this morning, these three observations, remain true for all of us. To grow in the kind of joy that Paul has doesn't come from just trying to copy Paul. It comes from going to the same source of joy that Paul found. So as we walk through Philippians 1, 19 through 26, there's three facts, three observations that I want to bring out. Uh, three things, hopefully, that we can start to think about uh, as we think about maybe one day attaining to this same kind of attitude that Paul has. 
first, Paul shows us that joy is not circumstantial. It's not based on our circumstances. Joy is not circumstantial. Second, he shows us that joy always comes from outside of us. It's not something we can create within ourselves. Joy comes from outside of us. And third, he shows us that joy can be learned. There's hope for all of us to learn the kind of joy that Paul is talking about. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy comes from outside of us, and joy can be learned. Let's, let's jump in and start with the first one, how uh, joy is not circumstantial. So we're going to consider here how Paul shows us that his joy is not based on his circumstances. So I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Uh, if you're using the, the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, I think it's on page 1164, or this Philippians journal that we have down at the Info Center, you'll notice the last couple of words of verse 18 are kind of stuck onto verse 19. There's a paragraph break there. Uh, most translations put the paragra- paragraph break there because these words kind of better fit with verse 19. They're introducing a new topic. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and. He's saying, I've got another, impo- another point to make and an even more emphatic one than the point before. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know. And again, think of the context. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. None of the things that are happening to me can keep me from rejoicing. He's on trial. He's in prison. He's on a state trial for essentially treason, because he's preaching a different God than the gods of the city, the country that he finds himself in. This is fairly common for martyrs in the first couple hundred years of Christianity. Uh, for, for someone to come and preach, hey, there is a God, there is a Savior who delivers you. You don't have to do all these things that the Greek or the Roman context tells you you have to do to make the gods happy. It is an assault on the social system. He's preaching against the gods of the age. He's subverting authority. And in a sense, though he would deny it and we would too, um, from their perspective, he's fomenting rebellion. And from Paul's perspective, he's teaching people how to be truly good citizens because they're citizens of heaven first. But from their perspective, he's unraveling the social fabric. And that kind of thing has to be stopped. It has to be put down. So Paul's on trial. He's facing some uncertainty and anxiety. Will he be acquitted and released or found guilty and executed? I've never been in that particular situation, but I imagine it weighs on you a little bit. And Paul says, yeah, okay, so there's people who are rubbing it in my face by still preaching. That's, I don't mind at all. They're still preaching Jesus. And you know what? I'm going to continue to rejoice, not just rejoice because of that thing that has happened, but I will continue to rejoice because of all the things that are happening. All of this stuff that I'm going through, I will continue to rejoice. And if you follow the through line here through verse 19, yes, and I will rejoice because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The English kind of rearranges the words a little bit to make, it more sense, make more sense for us, but his first sentence is, I will rejoice because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. We wonder what this is. What's the this he's referring to? Most commentators agree this means his present situation, everything that he's going through. 
all of the mental anguish, the anxiety, the deprivation, being in prison, um, making friends with the rats, whatever he had to do, all of that, he says, I will rejoice because I know that all of this, all of this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, deliverance is a, a really interesting word because the word behind it is the word in other places we translate as salvation. This will turn out for my salvation. Now, Paul is, I was going to say probably not, but almost, well, definitely, certainly not saying that all the things he's going through, God's going to look down on them and say, yes, I see that you really do love me. I will let you into heaven. He's not saying, okay, Jesus, I've gone to jail for you. Certainly now you will welcome me into eternity, right? He's not talking about spiritual salvation here. He's talking about physical salvation, physical deliverance. Um, when you're walking along and you trip and somebody catches your arm and you say, you saved me, right? I don't know if you speak like that, but uh, it's one of the ways we use the word to talk about physical deliverance, right? You have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. Physical deliverance. Now, most of the translations choose the word deliverance. Some will say salvation, but then you start to get a little, like, wonder, does he mean spiritual salvation? But personally, I think the best word to put here in English is vindication, but no, no one on any of the translation committees called me an ass, so deliverance is the word that, that got printed. Vindication, because it, it can contain within it both of these emphases that I think Paul is actually holding within the use of the word salvation. Because if he is found guilty or declared to be guilty and executed, he will appear before God and God will vindicate him. You were doing what I called you to do. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are innocent because of Jesus. Welcome to my eternity. He will be vindicated before God if he's killed. On the other hand, if he's acquitted and released, he'll be vindicated before men. He'll be delivered. He'll be found not guilty and let go. So it, when he says all of this will turn out for my vindication turn out for my deliverance, turn out for my salvation. He's not talking on a spiritual level. He's saying, whether I die or live, it's going to turn out to vindicate me. So joy, Paul's rejoicing, can't be based in his immediate circumstances. Because death is looming as a real possibility. But it also is somewhat located in his circumstances, his reality, his true reality. Because it doesn't matter what happens to him, life or death, he knows he will still stand before God, vindicated, delivered, saved. See, one of the reasons we, I think, struggle with joy or understanding what joy is, is because it's very easy for us to mistake joy for happiness. It's very easy for us to mistake joy for happiness. And if we do that, if we make that mistake, then we end up going down one of two different roads to pursue joy or pursue happiness when we see them as roughly the same thing. Now, I know we do this because we've been conditioned by years to think of joy and happiness as more or less 
the same thing. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody justify their behavior or someone's else's, someone else's behavior by saying, well, you just have to do what makes you happy? That person was just following their happiness. You can't, you can't condemn them for what they did. Everybody has a right to be happy, right? Or maybe you've seen the, the motivational posters that are out there. Do more of what makes you happy. If I did that, I'd have no money left to live on. Don't put the key to happiness in someone else's hands. No one ever gave me a key, so I don't know if you have a key, um, hold on to it yourself. You know, happiness is the journey, not the destination. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Always find time for the things that make you happy. Or my favorite, be happy. It's like, I hadn't thought of that before. Thank you, motivational poster. How many of you have a poster like that on your wall at home or on your desk or cross-stitched on a pillow somewhere? Anyone? Oh, great. Good. That's good. That's good news. See, if you look up joy in the dictionary, here's the definition I found for it. Joy is the state of experiencing abundant happiness. Joy is happiness, but more, right? Happiness is one scoop of mint chocolate chip ice cream with hot fudge and melted peanut butter. Joy is two scoops with extra peanut butter, right? So the, the perspective that we, we kind of accidentally, naturally fall into is that, okay, happiness, all right, so there's pleasure, there's physical pleasure. If I have a bunch of that, then I'll be happy. And if I have happiness and then a bunch of that, then I'll be joyful. Joy is quantitatively more happiness. Okay, so happiness and joy are on the same spectrum. It's just when you have this much, you're happy. When you have this much, you have joy. What Paul is saying, and he's working with a definition that is almost completely foreign to us, is that happiness and joy are separate things. They're independent goods. Now, yeah, there's definitely some overlap because they treat the same areas of life, but happiness and joy are different things. You can be joyful and not be happy. You can be happy and not be joyful. Joy is not found in our circumstances as if we could just somehow increase our happiness. But if we make that mistake, if we think joy and happiness are the same thing and they come from the world around us, there's two different approaches we could take to try to maximize our happiness. Well, one maximizes our happiness, the other minimizes our desire for happiness. Right? There's the stoic way that says just detach. Don't want things and you won't be sad. It's like the proverb, uh, want what you, if you want what you have and have what you want, you'll always be happy. Which is another way of saying you're not happy? Well, just be happy with what you have and you'll be happy. Like, thanks. It's really helpful. 
A lot of people have tried it. I mean, the, the essential outline is, look, don't worry about death because when you die, it's just, it's nothing. And you don't remember what you were before you were born. You won't know what you are afterwards. So death is, why be scared of it? Don't worry about pain because it's temporary. Either it's going to go away soon or it leads to death, which is already something you don't need to worry about. So pain's not a big deal either. And stuff, great, get all the stuff you want except Having the stuff is never going to outweigh the work that it takes to get the stuff, so don't bother. Just want less and be happy with what you have, and you'll be happy. Now, they've written a lot more than what I just said, but that, that's kind of the condensing of it. Uh, we tend not to go that way, mostly because there are a lot of billboards that don't let us. They tell us that there are things we need in order to be happy. So we tend to go the control way, where we get in and maximize our happiness for ourselves, If we could just tweak our lives exactly right, if we could just have the right, just the right job, just the right spouse or no spouse at all, just the right kids or no kids at all, just uh, the right overall career, just the right financial plan, just the right retirement plan, just the right diet and exercise plan, just the right on and on and on, fill in the blank. If we could just get all of these different parts of our lives to just the right area, then we would have happiness. And if we can get each of them up to some arbitrary level of happiness, then we're told, we hope, we expect, maybe someday we'll have joy. Of course, what happens when you take that approach? You spend the entirety of your life fiddling with the dials, setting new goals and trying to hit them, trying to achieve just the right balance, and it will work in theory, if life doesn't happen. Because life tends to get in the way of our plans and our attempts to maximize our own happiness. You know, you put all of your happiness stock in a relationship and maximizing your happiness in that relationship, what happens when the relationship falls apart? What happens when the weight of your own need for happiness in this relationship is the thing that kills it? Because you're sucking too much out of the other person, more than they were ever designed to give you. What happens when the full weight of your happiness is on having a, a career or a job that, that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment? What, what happens when the job changes, the boss changes, the mission of the company changes, the market changes and drops out from underneath you? What happens to your happiness? You put the full weight of your happiness on your kid's sports career. What happens when they have that career-ending injury? Or they don't like the sport you want them to like? What happens to your happiness? See, if we go... Well, usually what happens then is we decide, well, we'll just go the stoic way and not want it. If I just didn't want it, then I'd be happy. But both of those approaches to maximizing our own happiness forget the fact that happiness is not joy. Happiness is not joy. Of course, it's also not guaranteed, but that's a different sermon. For now, happiness is not joy. And happiness is, I don't, I don't think it's what Paul's talking about here, right? Paul is, think of his situation, he's not claiming to be happy. 
He doesn't have just the right job, just the right spouse, just the right kids, just the right income, just the right social life, just the right hobbies, just the right pets in order to be happy. And yet he says, I will rejoice. Yeah. All that stuff's happening? Yes. And all this stuff's happening? Yes. And I will rejoice. I don't think he's faking it. This is why he's so annoying. I don't think he's just writing this because that's what, you know, a good Christian is supposed to write. I think he's actually saying, in the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of my own ego and sense of accomplishment being crushed by people I thought were my friends, in the midst of all of this, I will rejoice. I will find joy. Why? How? Well, at the very least, we know Wherever he finds joy, it's not from his circumstances. I think we can safely conclude that joy, real joy, Christian joy cannot be based on what's happening to us. He must be talking about something other than just an abundance of happiness. So what is it? How does he find this joy? joy. How do we find this joy? That's what I want to know. We've said, I've said what joy is not. It's not our circumstances. It's not detachment from desire, nor is it uh, neurotic manipulation of our circumstances in order to try to make ourselves happy. It's not either of those approaches. It's not maximizing our happiness or minimizing our desire for happiness. Joy is something else. So what is it? If it's not just a big old bowl of regular happiness, what is it? It took me a long time to find a definition of joy I liked. Because everyone I found, or I should say all the ones that were easily Googleable, Googleable sounds a lot like gullible, doesn't it? I just made that connection right here, right now. I'm gonna have to rethink my research strategies. Uh, all of the, the definitions of joy that I could find that were easily searchable were based on happiness and, and making more of it, getting more of it. I had to go back in history to the Middle Ages to find a definition of joy that, that actually felt to me like it might be what Paul's talking about. I found it in Thomas Aquinas, the medieval doctor of church doctrine. He says that joy... And I found this thread throughout a number of other theologians, too, once, once I started pulling on it. He says that joy is directly related to love. Joy is directly related to love because joy, more than happiness, joy is what we experience when we are in the presence of our beloved. Joy is the experience of being in the presence of of the beloved. Or, if you can't be in the beloved's presence, at least knowing that your beloved is finding their true good. His uh, illustration of this is when we hear of a friend at a distance and we hear that they have uh, achieved something that they've been striving for or that they've, uh, they've come to some 
particular good, whether it's, you know, a family, a child gets married, something like that, we, we say, yes, that is, that, is your, that is a true good, that is your natural good, and, and joy is what we feel, not because we're in their presence, but because the thought of them achieving this true good is, brings joy in us. Okay, so joy, according to Aquinas, is being in the presence of the beloved, the one that you love, having your heart drawn towards that thing, person, place, and then being in their presence. And ultimate joy, ultimate joy comes from union with the beloved. So Aquinas says, joy is being in the presence of the beloved, and ultimate joy is union with the beloved, being united to them somehow. After our wedding ceremony, which is now 14-odd years ago, uh, Jen and I went through the hug line, which if you know my wife, it's just torture. Um, she is not a hugger, and there were 500 people at our wedding, because that's what happens when you do a church wedding in Iowa. And uh, just going through the line, hugging person after person after a person afterwards, she's like, my ribs hurt. But uh, this one guy, this older guy, I, I don't know who he was, I don't know his name, I don't remember anything about him other than that he grabbed my hand, and he leaned in close, and he said, I was watching you which is never something you want to hear from someone you don't know, but he leans and he says, I was watching you, and you smiled today the way a man only smiles on his wedding day. Walking back down the aisle, holding Jenna's hand, because I was in the presence of my beloved. That was joy. It wasn't something I chose or something I made happen it was an experience that came from outside of me, a, uh, an object of love that my heart had latched onto like a, um, like a compass always point, points north. My heart had attached itself to this object of love, and when I was in that object's presence, that is joy. This is what Aquinas says. Now, some of you could close your eyes right now and go back to your happy place or your happy moment. Maybe your happy place is a beach or a mountaintop or a Scrooge McDuck-style swimming pool of money. <laughs> or your happy place is maybe a, a, a moment in time, um, a particular conversation with a person or just being in that person's presence. Think about this for a second. If, if you need to close your eyes because this isn't your happy place, uh, if you need to close your eyes in order to visualize it, do that and hold on to that and then answer this question. That memory in your mind, I don't know where else your memory would be, that memory, your happy place or time or person, does that make you happy because of what it is or where it is or who it is in itself, or does it make you happy because of how it makes you feel about yourself? You see the difference? Somebody who uh, finally gets into a relationship, they've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, and they look at this person and they say, I love how you make me feel about myself. I love that you make me feel like I'm worthy of being loved. They're loving themselves through the person. Somebody who gets a, a job 
It's the job they've always wanted, they, they've always dreamed of, and they say, I love having this job because now finally people will see me as somebody good enough to have a job like this. They're not happy in the job itself. They're happy in the way the job reflects back on themselves. See, the thing about happiness and joy, the difference between happiness and joy is that happiness comes when we enjoy a thing for what it does for us. We enjoy a relationship because of how it makes us feel about ourselves. We enjoy a job because of how it makes us feel about ourselves. We enjoy, uh, you know, the, the pet that we got or the child we just had because finally now we'll have unconditional love. It's about how we feel about ourselves, even though we use the word enjoy to talk about it. The most we can get out of it is happiness. Joy requires that the object being loved be loved only for itself and its own sake. I use the wedding illustration. That moment, and there's been a few since then, in which I would say that my experience has been one of joy, not simply happiness. Most of the time, because I'm a fallen human being, most of the time I love my wife because I love the way she makes me feel. That her love makes me feel lovable. But there's been a few times. That's one of them. The others I can think of were never, were always in, involved some sort of suffering. But there's been times where I, I have, for a brief moment, sort of reached that point where I loved her for her sake because of who she is and experienced that kind of joy. Do you see the difference between happiness and joy? Happiness is the feeling you get when something that you love, when you're in the presence of something you love, but you love it because of what it can do for you. Joy is the feeling you get when you are in the presence of something you love for its own sake and for itself alone. Some beautiful place, some incredible piece of music, some person that you don't get to see as much as you would like, or maybe some person that you see every day. Uh, some experience you had in the past. It's for the sake of that thing itself, that person itself, that object itself, that God himself, that we love that thing. That's when joy comes. It's right here in this text, actually. Paul says in verse 21, and these are, the, of course, the scariest verses to try to be the one explaining from this whole passage. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's great prose, even translated into English. You should learn Greek just so you can read this in Greek, because it's so much more melodic. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. The sum total of living for Paul is Jesus. It's like there's nothing more to life than Christ. There's no greater love than Jesus. There's no greater desire for him than Jesus. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is not an economic cost-benefit analysis. This is the, the poetry of his heart coming out, saying, when it comes to my life, the greatest desire, the highest good, the most beautiful thing that my heart is drawn toward is Jesus. So if I were to die, well, guess where I'd end up? 
with Jesus. He's saying, look, to live is for Christ, to die is to be with Christ. I can't lose. Right? This is not, and some commentators have really wrestled with this, this is not Paul communicating a suicide wish. Okay, this is not his to be or not to be, that is the question, moment. This is Paul saying, you know, now that I've thought about it in verse 20, I can honor Jesus in my body, whether by life or by death. Speaking of life and death, for me to live just means I get to serve Jesus, and to die means I get to go be with Jesus. So if I had to choose, he's soliloquizing here. Is that a word, soliloquizing? He's uh, monologuing here. Uh, he's saying, look, if, if, I'm, if I live, great, I can keep serving Jesus. That's what my life is all about anyway. If I die, even better, I get to go be with Jesus. If I had to choose, if I could have the choice, he says, I would choose to go be with Jesus. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. But it's like I, I understand that God has me here for a reason. He has things that he wants me to do, and those things he wants me to do are, are more necessary for you. They're, they're, if I'm not here to write letters to you, I'm can't write letters to you. So he's like, if I die, I, I can't keep ministering to you guys. So he says, look, I think for now God has me here working with you, working for you, but if he gave me the choice, I would choose to go be with Jesus. It's the difference between having a picture of the person you love and having the person right in front of you. You can work hard in memory of the person or in anticipation of the person whose picture you hold, but boy, to be in their presence would be so much better than all the work that you're doing for their anticipated presence right now. Joy is being in the presence of the beloved. And Paul says that the highest love, the deepest desire of his heart is to, is Jesus. It's to serve him in life, be with him in death. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. I wish I could say that for myself. I mean, it's one thing to hand letter this and put it on your wall. It's another thing to live that, to really live as if Christ is the only thing, as if Jesus is the only thing that matters, or at least the most important thing in life, which is why I'm relieved, grateful, overwhelmed by the fact that joy can be learned. We can learn to have this same kind of joy that Paul has. Look, he goes on to say, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Convinced of the fact that even though he, his own heart's desire would be to go to be with Jesus, he's convinced that God probably has him here for longer and that his real role for right now is to serve Jesus rather than be with Jesus. Okay, so convinced of this, most likely, given the way God's used me, he wants to continue using me. Convinced of this, I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress, for your joy. Paul says, look, I, I'm, I'm going to stick around because it's my job to make sure that you find joy, that you grow in this joy, that you experience more of this joy. And he spends the rest of the letter telling him, here's some ways to do that. First of all, make Jesus the biggest thing in your life. 
Make Him the thing that your heart uh, desires most by continually going back and looking at who He is and what He has done for you. And secondly, do all the things that it takes, all of the spiritual disciplines, all of the spiritual practices, the, the worshiping together, the, the ethical living, all of the things that bring you more and more into His presence. Make Jesus the biggest thing in your life and come closer to Him and you will experience this joy. You too, he says, will be able to rejoice in suffering, to be able to rejoice in the Lord, to be able to rejoice not in what's going on around you, but because of what Jesus has done in you and for you. Thankfully, joy can be learned. Of course, we have to unlearn some things. We have to unlearn this idea that joy is in our circumstances, that it's in the abundance of happiness. We have to realize that joy is not something we create within ourselves. It's something that comes from outside of us when we're in the presence of something beautiful, something we love, when we're in the presence of our beloved. Joy is the natural reaction. We can learn to do those things as we continue to learn what Paul has to teach us in Philippians and, of course, all the other places he's talked about joy throughout the New Testament. But for today, let's bottom line this or bring it home for ourselves. How are we going to learn joy? How are we going to experience joy? Well, paradoxically, Paul teaches us, not just here but in many of his other letters, that we learn joy best when we suffer. We learn joy best when we suffer. That doesn't mean we go looking for opportunities to suffer. We're not masochists. But when suffering comes, we know that God is going to use it to teach us joy. One pastor that I read this week used this analogy. He said, your mother always told you, don't eat candy before a meal. Because that sugar buzz masks your real hunger. Happiness, you know, power, money, success, all the things that we want and desire. He says all of that is spiritual sugar, masking our real hunger for God. And if we keep snacking on happiness, we'll never, we'll continue covering our actual hun hunger for joy. So when happiness is taken away, when we suffer, we can't snack on happiness. We have to feast on joy. It's the only thing left. So suffering, grief, trial forces us to go deep into the resources of joy, past the superficiality of happiness, into the joy that comes in the hope of the gospel, in our faith, in what God is doing and is going to do for us, in the certainty of what He has already done for us on the cross in Jesus. So joy, somewhat paradoxically, grows most, grows deepest, grows richest when we suffer, we go through something difficult. But we also learn joy when we figure out how to redirect, redirect our hearts towards things that we should love more, towards Jesus. The most uh, emotionally fraught moment in the Weisman household this week was yesterday morning when my wife came downstairs, walked right over right in front of me and said, it's time. I've been putting it off for weeks. I've got the supplies. 
I've got the tools. I just need to do it. It's time to fix Blanky. She's been sleeping with Blanky for 37 years. And when she was seven and Blanky was pretty rough, Blanky was sort of recovered. And she said it took a year for her to get used to the new feel. But Blanky's falling apart. Blanky needs to be recovered. And like any loving husband, I started teasing her. Seriously? And she said, look, if, if Blanky dies, I will have to become a drug addict. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry? If Blanky dies, I can't sleep. I'll have to take Ambien. After a while, it's not going to be as effective. I'll have to start taking Adderall to be awake during the day, and I'll get addicted to that. By that point, I'll be old and probably die. If Blanky dies, what's the point of even living? We tend towards the dramatic in our house. But I'm curious, for you, for me, what's, what's the thing we would, we would put in that category, that blank? If such and such goes away, if fill in the blank disappears, why even go on living? For me, to live is blanky. I don't know what your security blanky is, but there's something there. For me, to live is to gather up all the recognition that I can, and so to die is to be stuck at the last level I was at. For me, to live is my family, having the perfect family. To die would mean I can't even be with them anymore. What's, if I lost them, why even go on living? For me, to live is my career. To die is to lose the chance to progress any farther. I, I don't know what it is for you, what your security blankie is that you want to put in that, that fill in the blank. For me to live is, or man, if I lost, why even go on living? Now that sounds extreme. Maybe we could temper it a little bit for our modern psychoanalytical age by saying, for me, if I lost this, well, then it would be very difficult for me to find happiness. What is that for you? For me to lose, fill in the blank, I don't think I could find happiness anymore. See, we learn joy when whatever that thing is, if it's not God, if it's not Jesus, if it's not our Lord and Savior, we learn joy when whatever that thing is we put in the blank is taken away from us. I know some of you who have learned joy that way. Your deepest heart's desire was taken away in one way or another, and the only resource you had left was digging deep into joy. And I'll admit, I don't want to go through what you went through. But every person I've talked to who has a story like that has, has told me they wouldn't trade it for anything. They would rather have the joy than what they lost. Because the joy drives us deeper into Jesus. I mean, we think about this. Jesus, our Savior, is the one who gave up his joy in heaven. He gave up his joy in order to come to earth die the death we should have died so that when we are with him, whether in life or in death, we can have this joy 
that he experienced and promises to us. He died so we could gain. I don't know of anything more beautiful than that. Sometimes I have a hard time living like that, reminding myself of that, but that's why I'm here every week, because there's nothing more beautiful than the one who gave up his joy so that I could have it, who gave up his gain so that I could have it, and, and, and who has promised to resurrect me with him into full and eternal union and realized ultimate joy with him. If that doesn't draw your heart Aquinas also wrote that uh, for those who don't have spiritual joy, the only recourse is carnal pleasure, bodily pleasures, the stuff of the world. If Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf doesn't draw your heart, then everything else you're going after is, is not going to fulfill. It's going to sort of push you, point you in that direction without, ever, without you ever realizing it's pointing you down the road to Christ. Paul can say, honestly, I will rejoice because if I live, it's living for Christ, and if I die, it's being with Christ. I will rejoice. I want that for me. I want that for you and for our church. So pray with me that God would do this work in our hearts too. Father, you've given us, you've given us in Jesus infinitely explorable depths of joy that we have barely yet begun to scratch the surface. Some in this room have, have dug much deeper than I have of joy. They've been forced to. I confess right now I want that joy, but I'm not sure that I want the path that leads there, but I pray that in your good providence uh, that you would take me to uh, a place of rejoicing only in you. And I'll trust you now that on the other side of that, it will have been worth the suffering. In the meantime, Lord, pull my heart back to Christ that I may rejoice in him. In Jesus' name, amen.